Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 43 of Daffy's Roundtable. Before we get into the introduction for this episode, let me quickly apologize for disappearing in January. I was doing some traveling and found it very hard to record episodes and edit without my setup. But now we're back to regularly scheduled content. For this episode, my guest is Billy Sven of Creepers Herpeticulture. Billy was a guest on Project Herpeticulture, where they talked about developing his 10 tenants, what they included, and the importance of developing tenants as keepers. By the way, this is a really good episode that I highly recommend you check out. I enjoyed this episode so much that I decided to have Billy on to discuss burnout in the hobby, tailoring your reptile selection to your reptile room design, and his mindset when it comes to herpeticulture in general. But before we do that, allow me to, as always, thank Exoterra for sponsoring this podcast and making this episode happen. Exoterra makes quality products for our pet reptiles to make them feel at home. Yes, we're still teamed up with Exoterra in 2023, and I've got a few exciting things in the works, so make sure you stay tuned to this channel and to my other channel, Daffy's Reptiles. Okay, without further ado, let's get into this week's conversation with Billy Sven of Creepers Herpeticulture. Billy, hello. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, happy to be here, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure, I'm very excited to do this. Okay, so... um, Let's dive right in. Sure. How did you, like, what's the, what's the Billy story? How did you get into the hobby and what are you currently keeping? Yeah, um, so I mean, I guess uh, it was always catching reptiles and enthusiastic about dragons and mythical creatures was kind of my inroad as a little kid. And so um, finding salamanders and snakes and all those stuff um, up in like the North Dakota, Minnesota area um convinced my parents to get me a bearded dragon for my 11th birthday nice. and in high school was having a bunch of different geckos kind of in my room had to get rid of a lot of that stuff for college my mom was wonderful enough to keep my bearded dragon and so then i got him back four years later and had him until he was about 14 and he died and but for a while there he was like my only uh pet reptile and then i got uh, uh, ball python, royal python, and have now that one's like uh, seven years old. And then about two years ago now, um, done moving around for work and training and things, and bought my first house and started making this is my like home office and started making this into the area where I keep my reptiles. Um, and so figured that was a time to dive in and get back involved in the hobby in a more serious level. And so started getting um, dark frogs. So I have one tank of Dunderbates leucomelis, and that's just like right to the side here. Um, I made a nice bigger vivarium for um, my pythons and she's right down here. Um, you should probably keep it bigger for a while we go. That's fine. I mean, so <laughs> okay, just, there we go. Awesome. Uh, her enclosure. Um, and then I got a um, Legodactylus Conrawi uh, Cameroon Dwarf Day Gecko, and uh, that's like right here. Um, so they're all just kind of around me, and I have plans to slowly expand um, and keep um, building my ability to care for these animals in with a high standard of care and really uh, engage all, as many aspects of their natural history as I can. Awesome. Okay. So really I wanted to have you on because of your mentality. 
um, towards the hobby sure. and the kind of the way you think of things. Because uh, well, we've we've spoken for a bunch on Instagram, but then yeah. also yeah. heard you on the projects of Pediculture, and that was an incredible sure. episode um, where you talked about the ten tenants. So we're not going to dive into the ten tenants today because that was a really well done episode, uh, and I think everybody should go check that out. But I do have like a couple of questions revolving around the tenants. Sure. If we could maybe jump yeah. into that for a second. Yeah. So. Um, First of all, maybe can you explain what tenants are and what originally gave you the idea to create them? Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, shout out real quick to Roy and Phil for inviting me on their podcast. So it's, um, yeah, you can hear it there on the Animals at Home Network. Um, it's nice and long if you're interested in listening to me talk for a couple hours. Yeah, it's an but, awesome episode. I definitely recommend it. Um, yeah. So the tenants, so as I was going back in, um and getting more serious about it. again i never was like without a reptile or frog really um but as i was going back in i had the idea that i could get into deep or overwhelmed and i wanted to have a focus so for the first time i had space i had an adult income it was very different than when i was 16 and like had to convince my parents to get another 10 gallon tank um and i didn't want that mentality i didn't want to be trying to figure out how many different kinds of geckos i could line on the shelves of my room i wanted to make my office look more like uh like a jungle or like a zoo have a, right. a, a different standard and so as i was thinking about how to do that in a sustainable ethical way and just kind of the way my brain works i decided to write down my like ethos of how i was going to go about doing that um and so that's how that came about and then like as i was sorting them out 10 just ended up being the number that it kind of came to which seemed like a, a good number to have yeah it's always nice to have like a round round yeah. number kind of thing yeah. uh awesome okay so uh so the question is, do you think that everyone should have their own tenants? And do you think that everyone's tenants would be necessarily the same as yours? Or yeah, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, um, the second part, absolutely not. Um, so <laughs> um, should everyone have their own tenants? Uh, I think everyone should reflect on why they do what they do. And I think that goes well beyond herpeticulture. But for sure, since we have a practice where we are taking other living creatures and being becoming responsible for them i think it's important to reflect on that whether that means you really like sit down and meticulously pick through the words of setting out like your mission i don't think that's necessary to be able to do it really well i know um, just when people contacting me after listening to that episode people that have way more animals than me and are doing a really high level of care haven't necessarily pieced through all of this for themselves and so obviously it's not a prerequisite for doing a really good job i think it's a good practice to reflect on things actively and lots of people do that even if it's not actually writing them down for that second part to say a little bit more about that should everyone uh say the things i said no so i am like 
I, I'll probably breed some things, but I'm not that interested in doing that at a big scale. I want to have a wide variety of animals instead of like really focusing on one thing. And so that would change quite a bit depending on what you're doing. Um, it, like my interest in the feeder insects, um, for example, is something that I think a lot of people wouldn't share and is really only doable if you're going to have small things or if you want to like dedicate a, a really gross room to crickets, which I would never do. No. Um, so yeah, there are some idiosyncrasies that are specific to me in there. There are some other things I think are good that I see lots of people doing that aren't unique to me, like thinking of your animal as a commitment for its entire life and breeding things responsibly so that you don't overproduce an animal that you don't have good homes for them to go to. Those types of things I see widely throughout um, the hobby as far as people that I look up to. Yeah, awesome. And one of the ones, um, or one of the ones that I really liked out of out of the tents was, um, and I'm, I'm definitely not phrasing this right, but sort of where you talk about keeping smaller sized animals in larger size enclosures. Uh, why do you think that's a good way to do it? Which yeah, I, and, I agree, and, by the way. But yeah. yeah, so I think you need, so there's, there's a minimum size you need to be able to give the right gradients and maintain those then there's the ability for the animal to show all of its natural um, or at least a lot of its natural behaviors so if you have a snake that climbs and hides and perches you need to be able to have enough room to create those gradients and have the space for the snake to do those things and so that's a, a fairly big area um, and so when i think about that for example, with my frogs, they have lots of, they have, they're essentially in a, like a tall 40 gallon, like it's, um, it's a custom made um, tank, but it, there's three of them in there and they have a lot of space. It could definitely be bigger. It would be awesome to be bigger, but um, they can hop around and do all sorts of uh, their behaviors as far as hunting and hiding and calling and uh, foraging and exploring through all the little nooks and crannies in there. And it's so much easier to do that in a small space, even, uh, or, or for a small animal. So even, um, like my dwarf gecko, the ability to get, uh, small branches that the thing will never be able to break or, um, damage and then have those crisscross the entire enclosure and it was like i don't know ten dollars to like buy like nice branches to do that versus it would cost 10 times that to do something even just a little bit bigger because you'd need to get so much bigger branches for is another like good example for it and a bigger enclosure and bigger space and yeah like doing the same thing in um an enclosure twice the size is not just twice the amount of effort it's a lot more yeah knowing no. from doing that for the like 120 gallon uh python enclosure that i did it was significantly more work yeah and, and i'd love to we'll definitely get to that uh because there's a interesting like sure. you, you did the whole shift from tub to enclosure which you mentioned yeah, earlier yeah. definitely touch on that but 
um before we get to to kind of the reptile room and and, and all that mm -hmm. um one thing you mentioned a few times there is getting overwhelmed uh you were worried about getting overwhelmed you've seen bigger um keepers and breeders sort of not having the tendons as well and maybe they're not getting overwhelmed but the potential of a lot of people going down that path and at some point getting overwhelmed is i think very clear and and i think we're seeing it a lot more in the hobby now yeah. um it's, it's almost like a very constant thing to see I, I i can't keep up with my reptile room i'm selling a bunch mm -hmm. of things off right now um so why do you think that people are getting to that stage and what do you think we can do to prevent the burnout or the or people getting overwhelmed and all that yeah i think there's a lot of aspects to it one is if you're wanting to breed things it takes a few years so you know two to three years probably if you're getting babies of something and yeah. so if you have the resources to keep getting stuff all of a sudden you're three years in and you have a dozen pairs or colonies or whatever you have and now all of a sudden all of them are multiplying when a year or two ago none of them were and so i think that can be exceedingly overwhelming um it's exciting to get something new it's exciting to research something and to think about it and plan for it and so i think that's something that we can um Dylan Perrin talks about this all the time, harness that and reinvest that into making your care better. So instead of getting the excitement about getting a new animal, the excitement's about adding a new type of um, prey item for the animal or adding a new plant into their enclosure and trying to make it so that that can work or changing the lighting system so that's automated in a different way and getting the pleasure out of that and the research deeper into you animals you already have rather than just grabbing new ones not to say i'm not going to get new animals i very much plan <laughs> to get new animals but i'm going to do that slowly so that i don't overwhelm myself i think covid is a great example we didn't um you know no one thought that this is exactly how these years were going to go right even people that think a pandemic is likely to happen even again. Um, you don't know when that's, those types of things are going to happen and how that's going to affect your life. Um, I mean, when I was 16 and I had to get rid of, or, you know, I had, that's kind of like the peak of the animals I have. And then when I was 18, I had to get rid of them. I wasn't thinking about what I was going to be doing in 10 years. I now am a part of that having kids and having a job and working through all that stuff and just being older. Um, but I'm thinking about what I'm going to be doing in five, 10, 20 years. And I don't want to have to scale back. I want to be able to maintain where I am and slowly, um, responsibly move forward. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome answer. Exactly. I, I think that's another important thing to consider, which like, where are you going to be in five, 10, 15 years? Cause that's are the lifespan of these things. Like a lot of these animals. 10 is a, a somewhat low lifespan. There are definitely some animals that that's a good natural life for them, but a lot of them it's 15, 20, 30. 30, yeah, 100%. Yeah. And if you keep turtles and tortoises even longer. Oh, so much longer. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Okay, awesome. So um, you mentioned there that you're designing a reptile room or you're expanding yeah. your, your reptile room, your collection. Um, 
how do you go about so uh you you've talked about this before like um or or you mentioned it on the project of Culture episode where you kind of tailor the species you're getting to the reptile room but also mm -hmm. tailor the designing the reptile room to what species you kind of want to keep um yeah. so like so why do you think it's a good idea to design the reptile room and like you know like what's your opinion on why did you do it basically yeah so this room is i i mean i'm fortunate to have a space in my home that's my like home office and i kind of do what i want with it and so it's like 10 feet by 14 feet and i can have as many animals as i can responsibly fit in here and so what i was thinking i i knew i wanted dart frogs because i knew i would want to it'd be like a perfect animal to be able to um just look over and see them hopping around in uh dirt during the day during my um you know when i need a, a little break and so that was kind of the vision and when i started um looking through Denderboard and other websites and seeing people's collections the idea of having like a wall of dart frogs was something that you see fairly often and then i started thinking what if they weren't all dart frogs what if they were other kinds of geckos salamanders uh tree frogs other kinds of animals and so that's the thing that i thought and then when i had this house um i need to be able to work in this room so i don't want it to be 80 degrees or sure. 90 degrees and so trying to think about what animals can i put in here that like it what we call room temperature and a lot of those tropical forest floor species are like that and then also since it's not a massive room it's hard to make something really hot something really cold it's hard to make something really dry and something really wet and so um and, and the difference between being wet and being humid is important too and still the idea of getting things um, well ventilated so i made the decision to humidify the room so i have a humidifier that keeps the room around like 50 to 60. it's a little hard during the winter it sometimes only keeps it in the 40s but significantly different than the rest of my house and then that makes it pretty easy to keep the enclosures 60 80 90 whatever i really want it to be without too much extra work um so yeah i'm uh if it's not clear what I, i'm trying to have a lot of uh, tropical species that like it in the uh low 70s mid 70s for their ambient with maybe a slightly higher temperature toward the top which naturally happens even if you don't have like big basking lamps and then I'm going to make a lot of things out of PVC is the plan. And so that will insulate heat and reduce the heat um, and put hoods over things that need heat. But as of right now, the only thing that needs a significant amount of heat is the um, Python. And I built a hood for that enclosure, which uh, as of right now, I'm only putting a few 45 watt bulbs in there in it keeps the temperature nicely and so it's bearable to sit right next to it i so that was actually my next question like what, what do you think for people who want to keep you know an arid hot species with like a cool tropical in the same room do you think it's doable 
but sure. I guess that yeah, I guess that's what that would be one one way to do it. You know, put a hood on it, keep it a little bit further away from where you're sitting. Yeah, it's doable, <laughs> but it's it's going to be a lot of work. And if you're going to have a lot of things like that, the people that if you're going to have a lot of reptiles, it's going to take up a room or take up parts of multiple rooms of your house. Like that's the way it, it's going to be. Hundred percent. And so a lot of people have a hot room and a cool room or a temperate room and a arid room or a tropical room. They have their cloud forest room that gets really cold. You know, like they, people do that. And yeah. um, at least the way it is right now and the way it is for the foreseeable future, I have this room. I don't really have the rest of the house. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to have one room that I can do whatever I want with. And looking through the species I wanted, again, like really centering in on the poison dart frogs, now I'm centering everything around that. So the things that work well are some of the other uh, tree frogs, like glass frogs, other poison frogs, some of the new Caledonian geckos. I'm really interested in the Eurodactyloides. Nice. So they're even smaller than smaller. like a, a crested gecko. Yeah. Um, some of the um, like what people call micro geckos or other. Um, like Felsuma day geckos, they, um, so the micro geckos would be like Spherodactylus, Gonotodes. Gonotodes, yeah. Um, they require a little uh, hot spot, but you're talking like a 15 watt bulb, not like a, a, a big bulb. Um, and so, and if you have a big enough cage, that's, that's not a, a big deal and won't heat things up and I could put them on the top. So those are things I'm interested in. Also, um, uh goniurosaurus uh the cave geckos yeah. they like it nice and cool um i don't know if Europlatus would work in here because it might get too warm at times but those are things that i'd be interested in too potentially mantellas so already i'm saying too many things yeah <laughs> i can't all the, be in here the wall will uh, fill up pretty quickly exactly um but that's but, how it goes there, right yeah but there are so many options is what i'm trying to get mm -hmm. at even within that constraint of relatively cool temperatures, tropical. Um, like there are some species that I'd love to have that just won't fit that room. And maybe in the future, kids are older, kids want an animal in their room or something, you know, <laughs> then, then maybe I'll, we'll switch something else up. But you, you convince them that that's the animal they want in their room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't you, don't you think you really want a dwarf articulated python? Yeah. No. Yeah. no. <laughs> so I've actually kept Gonotodes and Spheridactylus. Yeah. What's your opinion? And I, this might be different for you because you're actually working in the room. So maybe you, you get a chance to see them more often, but what's your opinion on animals that, you know, are hiding most of the time or something yeah. like that? Um, because, well, so, and, and, and another like disclaimer there, I've seen many Gonotodes and Spheridactylus species that don't hide all the time, mm. but the two that I kept um, were, you know, I, I didn't see them too often. So like, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I definitely like to see my animals. Yeah. The, the Dendrobase leucomelis uh, poison frogs I picked are, I specifically picked them because they're good beginner frogs and they're relatively bold. And I'm like not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure the next thing I'm going to add to the room are Phylobates terribilis, which are nice. like super bold, known to be like the yeah. boldest of dart frogs. Yeah. And for that reason, I. I, I like to be able to see the animals. Um, so the Eurodactyloides, again, even though they're crepuscular nocturnal, 
they often hide in plain sight and they're just yeah. like laying out on a branch so you can see them even during the day um and then um like glass frogs uh would be something i can then see at night uh, right, for example yeah. um so, you can even see them sleeping during the day yeah um and so yeah i i think some of those micro geckos are so uh so shy but from what i've read there are some species that are better than others and so yeah. maybe something I, I look into they're they're a bit further down the list probably for that reason though the heat and and that for sure it's interesting because some people will say you know I, I like to see my animals and other people will say i don't mind not seeing them because when i see them it's it's even more special it's like a surprise yeah. but i i like to see my animals too i, I completely agree with you i, 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 I look like at any point them. to see them yeah yeah I and um especially now like the poison frog vivarium is relatively overgrown and so it's pretty rare that i see all three and there's definitely times where i look over and i can't see any of them yeah but i still really like it i think it's a really pretty um piece of artwork in, yeah in it's like yeah. It, it's a slice of the jungle sitting on my desk it's like just amazing that it's there and i can throw in a few dozen uh <laughs> little fruit flies and they'll come out pretty quick so they come storming out yeah yeah 100 yeah. uh awesome okay so let's sort of get into the enclosures sure. with with the you know the the transition of you're also very into diy yeah um, so what, what do you think the advantage of doing DIY is versus buying ready-made products? Sure. Um, you get to customize them yourself. So you don't have to retrofit uh, and fruit fly, fruit fly proof yes. enclosures when you can build them the way you want them. You can have as much or little ventilation as you want. So like the first enclosure I made, I followed Troy Goldberg's um layout pretty much verbatim the euro was, style ones uh yep exactly um for the um before the poison frog right enclosure and it worked really well but on future ones and i've made like smaller things for like a praying mantis and then for the um dwarf gecko and i have more ventilation especially for how small the enclosure is on those because i've decided to humidify the room and so it's so much more customizable it's cheaper for what i think is a better product like I, I like sliding doors instead of swinging doors i like to be able to take them off all the way so i think that's fun there's a sense of accomplishment and achievement and knowing that you've put it together and i think it causes you to slow down and have a sense of achievement every step of the way. The achievement is not just, I bought this animal. The achievement is I built the enclosure. Now I have completed the background. Now I've planted it and set up a micro environment. Now that's all really well established and it's been a couple months. Now I can introduce the animal. And so, from the planning to seeing the animal in the enclosure is like half a year in my experience doing this a couple times now. And I like that process. And, and I think that's a healthy process for the hobby for, for me. No, I agree. No, for, 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 for the hobby, like you said, it's, it's, it's more than just 
throw it together, throw the animal in, forget about it, move on yeah. to the next time, right? It's yeah. There's a whole process, and like saying, like there's maintenance afterwards as well. How you know? Are you gonna just set it up and let it just overgrow and and do its thing, or are you gonna sure. maintain it? And you know, yeah. um, no, that's awesome. Okay, so you so you built the dart frog vivarium, mm -hmm. and did you build all the enclosures in in that you have set up? Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. awesome. So I built the dart frog vivarium. It's like a standard. It would it'd be half of a baker's rack shelf essentially. Is how Troy Goldberg set did his measurements um then the um python enclosure is a two foot by uh two foot by uh or sorry four foot by two foot by two foot uh so 120 gallon and then it has a almost like a foot um deep hood that goes over top of it too and so that's all pvc that i made with my father-in-law um and so that was that was fun to make and then I've made a couple smaller tanks that are like six gallons, one for a, a praying mantis and one for the the dwarf gecko. Yeah, and for the dwarf gecko, you, I guess maybe you fruit fly proofed it, but you also escape proofed it for the gecko. Yeah, yeah, I can. Uh, actually, that door is pretty hard to get out. I, uh, <laughs> um, trying to, the tubing is far away but yeah, oh, it's, okay. um, yeah, yeah it's okay it, it's tubing so i've done like the the silicone method where you tape it off lay a bead of silicone use a credit card that you like measure the distance between the doors and like cut a like a nick out of the credit card and swipe it down and pull it off you should have like a perfect like rectangle of silicone uh, i've done another method where you like essentially glue the doors together but put lotion on one of the doors so that um it doesn't stick to the other door and then you cut it down but there's always some imperfections which is fine for fruit flies because it like greatly reduces if you feed the appropriate amount you barely get any come out that come out and the fruit flies that they really try can get through mesh even too yeah. so that's not a big deal but when i put a baby gecko in there that's going to explore every nook you can't let the one baby gecko get out so that was a higher bar and initially, I just had in a one-gallon jar that I had um, redone the top for and stuff. And there's no way it was going to get out of that. But then when I went to this, it's um, it's like little silicone tubing that's to protect the edges of uh, metal, like a door of a car. So you it's adhesive on one side and then like flappy on the other that it, it's just loose. And yeah. so it expands to fill that surface so that you could put on different th thicknesses of a door is the idea. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it, it expands to fit the other side of the door and you can slide it open really easily uh, versus like I, I was experimenting and trying it on the, the Python enclosure and I used windows or uh, yeah, window weather stripping. And okay. I had to, so it, it's really adhesive and works well. It was black, which is why I did it on there because it doesn't matter. I have a support bar in the middle anyway. It's all hidden. I didn't want to do it in the middle of a enclosure where you could see that a big black line down the middle. Right. But I had to continuously like shave off pieces of it because it kept on grating as the door slides past. But this one, I mean, it opens and closes super easy. I've had the Lycan access for a while now. And maybe this goes back to 
what you were saying earlier about smaller species and large enclosures, but what do you mm -hmm. think of them as a pet? Do you recommend them? Yeah, uh, I think they're fun. They're from everything I've seen, I've never had Le a Legodactus Williams eye, but they seem very similar in care and temperament and boldness. So all this yeah. with um, a grain of salt, considering I just have one and it's a juvenile still, it's like four months old, but it's, getting more and more bold by the day it seems like um doesn't hide for me nearly as much um when it was little it was really bold in that tiny one gallon but then when i moved it into this like five six gallon enclosure it started to hide again um but now it's out perching and hunting and stuff it's fun to see i love the colors of it like there's there's something very cool about a, a blue gecko because i feel like that's the comparison you always have to make is them versus a williams eye Williams eye, yeah um but I like the 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 green to bluish with like a little bit of like yellow that the that the males get, and I think the females are cool too. It's cool to have something that uh, is so sexually dimorphic, which is also true of the Williams eye. The Williams eye, yeah. Uh, do, do you know? I guess four months is probably too young to sex yours now, right? Yeah, I don't think so. And if if it is early enough, it's definitely not male. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's still no, very like the gray with a little bit of uh reddish on the tail okay makes sense yeah um, i've only raised a few babies but all the ones that i've raised are still around that stage now too okay. so i thought i thought they were all going female but maybe they're just not ready to sex as well so i know exactly what you mean you put out okay, let's talk about the python for a minute so you put out um this interesting on instagram mm -hmm where you were explaining why you think they should be called uh, royal pythons yeah. instead of ball pythons. Yeah. Uh, I think that's awesome. Why, sure. why do you think so? So maybe, yeah. Yeah, I. Uh, it's a cooler name. Like if you're just trying to market the animal, royal python is an awesome name. It, it's also what their binomial name is too, python regius. Like that's what it refers to. Um, and I've heard a few different ideas of why, one of which that I think is cool is the idea of West African indigenous people regarding them as um, like sacred or special and even like having them as an adornment, like a priest having one around their wrist, um, which if you've held them, you know, they do very readily just like wrap around and, and hold there for um, a long time, for a long time. Um, I think the the calling them a ball python like they they curl up into balls like that's like a natural position they have but it's also a defense posture and so it's something that i try to not encourage my python to do like i ideally when i'm seeing the python is she's relaxed and moving about doing her normal thing and when i pick her up she has nothing to fear because she knows what we're doing and she's used to it um and so i think royal fits her better than uh inanimate object a ball no, but I, I also feel it does feel and it's what uh you know people across the pond say all the time is royal pythons yeah. um and uh so sometimes i feel like a little bit pretentious saying royal python so i often <laughs> say both um but yeah i think it's a better name I think it's pretty like objectively a better name. So you, but you recently, or I don't know how recently, but you moved your mm -hmm. uh, 
say I'm still using saying ball python. Cool. Yeah. Ball python from a tub into a um, enclosure. What was the reason behind making the the move? Yeah, sure. So when I first got the snake, so seven years ago, um, I looked up what I thought were reasonable sources, um, like reptiles magazine and the uh forums that were widely about at that time and i wasn't spending i mean i probably spent hours well even just listening to podcasts i clearly spent hours a week um <laughs> taking in her pediculture information i wasn't doing that back then um but i i would say i did my homework and figured out how to care for this animal but the things I saw were about rack keeping. And so I duplicated that for one animal. So I had one animal, but I got a Sterilite tub and made that and increased the tub size as the animal got bigger, not even realizing how cool it would be to make a full enclosure. Mm -hmm. So then when I got this room, it took a while to get things settled, but then I um, got kind of like the biggest um tote that i could reasonably find that she wouldn't be able to escape from and i put substrate in there i modified the lids like put overhead lighting and i put branches in there um and multiple hides instead of just like one hide um and a bigger bowl and definitely saw more activity from her saw her get out and explore that around but like not even definitely not enough space for her to all the way stretch out. Definitely not enough space for her to um, explore very much. Um, but she would like poke her head out every once in a while, and, and it was always the goal to then get her into a big enclosure. Um, I don't always like the idea of, like minimum sizes because I think there's a you know not all space is equal, and so you, there's a lot you can do if you think of a two by two, two, a four by two by two uh, foot enclosure, you, that could still be quite minimal, especially if you're putting your, like your lights on the inside versus you have your lights on the outside. And I have like a top layer that she can be on that creates a hide. And then there's some like burrowed down hides in there too. And then there's cork bark that she can go through in the middle. Um, and so the whole thing, there's different areas for her to feel secure and there's planted throughout. Could I make it bigger? Absolutely. And that, that could be fun to do in the future. We'll see. Um, but this was a, a great place to start. But I was still concerned that it might be too complex of an environment for her, especially as she wasn't young. She's seven years old. Um, but she transitioned fairly well from what I would call like a somewhat complex tub. Also, it was um, clear tub, so you could see through it. Okay. Um, and she could see me moving around throughout the day. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And, and do you see, I guess you already sort of covered this after she's been in there for a while. Do you see any mm -hmm. behavioral changes, yeah. anything like that? Yeah. 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 Um, so she's been in there for a month. Um, at first she really did explore. Like I put her in there, um, early in the morning and she explored for about a half an hour before she went into the cool side hide. I think it's the hide she found first. And she really stayed in there for a long time, um, where I like made me nervous. Like she stayed in there for a, maybe she came out at night and went back in, but she was always in there and sometimes looked like she was in like the exact same spot. 
which again she did in the other uh, enclosure too. Um, but and then I moved the lights over and I made that the warm hide. And then <laughs> uh, in like two days, she was definitely coming out a little bit more. Um, and now I've, I've changed the lights and decreased the wattage a little bit because um, now she's in the previously, she went to the, the other cool hide essentially, okay. the cool yeah. hide. And now I've made them so they're not the same temperature, they're still a warm and a cool one, but they're more equal. Um, I, and I wonder if that's part of it because even though I only heated one side of her big tub the whole thing was more or less the same ambient temperature with one one hide being a little bit warmer okay. and so right now i have a true cool end and a true hot end and so i wonder if that gradient she doesn't like know how to explore as much so i kind of like guided her into where i think she should be uh and i'll continue to experiment with that but then after she went over there um i i don't feed her on a schedule i feed her when she's like in her ambush mode at night. And again, yeah. just because I don't have very many animals, it's not a big deal to keep track of that. Um, and I've tried to feed her even though she wasn't doing that at the end of like a two week period when she was on the cool side and she didn't take it, which was the first time she'd missed a meal in a long time, but kind of made sense. Um, then when I put her on the warm, got her to go over to like a warmer side, she went into that ambush mode like within two nights and took a, a small medium-sized rat and then still was doing that like every night. And so like three nights later, I gave her a chick and she took that fine. And she still like goes into ambush mode almost every night. Like uh, as soon as the lights go out, if I walk in or especially if I open the glass, she just head She's comes ready. out. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. It's that's really, awesome. It, and that's more activity than I normally see from her. Um, even now with like all the lights on, if I open the glass, She'll um, come, and start coming on there. She'll stick her head out and and look around. So I I had a similar um similar situation actually with my carpet python when I first um when I first got him or I say him I don't actually know if it's him but when I when I first got him he uh, the the breeder told me keep him something small or he won't eat or he stop eating yep. and I actually did upgrade him when he was like two years ago now or something into a slightly bigger thing and he did stop eating so I moved him back down mm -hmm. so I had him in a small enclosure for a very long time but once I um, upgraded him into like a proper um setup and all that he, he he's always in the ambush mode like you said i don't feed on a schedule either so he'll come out and he waits and and, mm -hmm. and and now it's usually he'll accept food not a little more readily a lot more like yeah. it's almost anytime i feed him he's ready to eat but um what do you think the advantages are of feeding on a schedule versus feeding or like what, what do you yeah so obviously sure. i feed off schedule so um, yeah yeah um, I mean, I think if you have a lot of animals, feeding on a schedule makes sense. I mean, I feed on a schedule for my other animals. It's essentially feed them almost every day. <laughs> um, but if you, yeah, I mean, if you have 20 snakes, it probably makes sense to feed them on Fridays and then the adults every other Friday or, you know, or something, you know, something. Yeah. Um, and then you can just keep track and, and maybe you look at them and you're like, oh, that's in shed or it's, um, really not coming out. And so um i'm going to skip this week you know um again a situation i haven't really been in but that kind of makes sense whereas for me it's not a big deal to be like oh i've noticed that she's coming out and looking like she's hungry two nights in a row i'm gonna thaw one wrap tonight like that's easy to do yeah no, that, that makes sense
I get like in during the cool time, I don't change her lighting a lot because they're pretty equatorial, but the room naturally gets a little bit cooler and I do change the lights a little bit. And there's a, a window like directly in front of me right now. And so the, the room itself gets darker, even if her lights stay on. Right. Um, and I think that changes things because for years she often goes a month or two between feeds during the winter. Okay. That's not uncommon for her to do, even though I'm not like really cooling her. Okay. And did she do that this year as well? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. It makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. I mean, she probably had gone three weeks without eating when I had, or, or between eating when I had moved her into the new vivarium okay. and then she went two to three weeks before I fed her. Um, now it does seem like maybe I could feed her a lot more often. So I don't know what the new cadence is going to be in the, the new vivarium. I don't know. I wonder this, the topic of feeding on a schedule very frequently and, and not feeding very frequently because I feed a lot of them sort of semi, like you said, on, on a schedule, like yeah. my frogs and, and geckos right. are always like, these days a week they're getting their fruit flies and their pasture, but with the mm -hmm. with my snake it's just the one. But I try to feed them off schedule as much as possible because okay. I want to yeah. see, or, or like it's it's there's there's two things right. There's the thing of of pythons gaining weight really quickly because yes. they they generally don't eat that often, and then there's also the if we're just feeding them, are we getting them used to never coming out of the hides and just because. Like right. you said, that ambush prep, that ambush mode is kind of when he comes out mm -hmm. um, and kind of walks around. So it's just it's a very very interesting topic. Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, I've never done any target training, and I'm curious about how she would take to that because she's older. But it's something right. I'm interested in doing. But at the very least, I'm interested in doing um, some more complex like feed boxes where she has to explore for the food. No, oh, interesting. So, okay. Um, you know, take like a Tupperware container, cut a hole in it and make a tube that the snake has to go into to get the the food um, or like do a scent trail. So um, take the the uh, rat and kind of drag it across the ground and then put it up high and just leave it there and see if nice. she gets it um, throughout the night. So those are things I'm interested in doing that I haven't tried yet. Okay. That's I, I, so those are very interesting. So kind of like puzzle games for dogs yeah, and stuff like yeah. that. So do, so you, do you generally tong feed or do you generally just leave the, the prey item? Yeah. In, I tong feed. There are yeah. times where, um, she doesn't get it or, or she doesn't seem interested and then I'll drop feed and she has done that before, but almost always, if she doesn't take it from a tong, she's not going to take it okay. otherwise. So I don't know if it will really work, but it's something I'm interested in. Trying. Yeah, because so I've gotten I've gotten uh, snake used to a pair of tongs and a hook, and mm -hmm. so he kind of knows whether like when he sees the hook or he sees the or I think he knows at least. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. That okay. It's it's time to eat or time to 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 just go hang out. So I wonder if trying those like you said trying those things if not the food's not on a tong, if he will try to go look for it yeah. or, or all of that, but. It's it's super interesting. These are the you know the little things that make the hobby fun, which is as you were saying before. Yeah. Um, kind of spend your energy and your time researching and doing these kind of things rather than just constantly expanding. And and I would I would say having 
her feed that first time in this vivarium was as exciting as getting a new animal. I guess and you, yeah, like it was that same. I was like texting lots of people on Instagram and stuff. Like, guess what just happened? She <laughs> <ate>. <laughs> yeah. Okay, awesome. No, that's the so sweet. Uh, all right, perfect, Billy. That I think that's all the questions I had for you for today. Cool. Yeah. Um, thank you very, very much for coming on and doing this. Uh, yeah. Like I said, I love your mentality and your enthusiasm towards the hobby, and I hope more people start adopting similar like-minded opinions. Um, but uh, can you let everybody know where they can find you? Yeah, well, it's been a real pleasure, um, and, and it's been fun getting to know you on Instagram and finally getting to talk to you. Yes. So, Likewise, uh, likewise. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, um, sure. so on Instagram, I am uh, Creepers for Petticulture. Sometimes people ask why that name. Um, so uh, the Herpetos in herpeticulture means creeping animal or creeping ones okay. um and so i am i'm embracing that reclaiming the the term creeping um so creepers like herpeticulture it. on instagram is really my my only presence i guess i'm technically on facebook too but it links to my instagram awesome awesome and that'll be in the show notes go give him a follow um keep it keep an eye on all of his uh posts and his diys and his stories because it's all very very interesting uh billy once again thank you very much for coming on man and uh, for everyone else, welcome back to the new year. I know I haven't posted in a while. So once again, thank you for all for sticking around. Uh, I am Daffy's Reptiles on all social media platforms. Daffy's Roundtable for the podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.